New Year's shindig. We celebrated New Year's at 8 to uh, cater to the children. I made this huge homemade ball pit uh, out of construction paper, 1,500 showbiz and Chuck E. Cheese balls, and uh, zip ties, and it was pretty amazing. It's also fun for adults um, and uh, has really been a, a great addition to my household. So next time you're at my house, which I know all of you will be there this evening after the service, please jump in the ball pit. Amen? You're like, this guy is extremely weird. It's just getting started. Um, Christians have done a lot of interesting things throughout the years, haven't they? In fact, I would, I would be more specific in saying we've had a lot of interesting fads. Who could forget the WWJD bracelets? You know what I'm saying? You guys don't know. I mean, and you had some in every color, so they matched every outfit. Anyone else? Or am I just talking about myself? Okay. The other three of you there. Those were, those were pretty killer. Um, then I loved what the culture did with that, and they started making up their own acronyms. You know what I mean? I just... Whatever matched with WWJD, they would just add in. And, and if your initials were JD, then you were like the king of the school because everyone would say, what would, you know, John Denver do or whatever. Good songwriter. Um, then we had the old Christian fish uh, time. You remember that? Where on every Christian vehicle... If you, actually, let me say this way. If you didn't have a Christian fish, you weren't a Christian. Like, that's just kind of what the late 90s thought. You know, it's like, you got a Christian fish? Oh, dude, I mean, what are you, are you a pagan? You know? Well, no, I just haven't been to the Christian bookstore, but, you know, yet... Um, so lots of these crazy fads, but, but there's, there's one more that really intrigued me. Uh, there was a series that came out in the uh, mid to late 90s, and this is where it all began, right here. Um, the Left Behind series. Now, um, now, this became for Christians an absolute obsession, you know? It also revealed how poor Christians are at making movies, Okay. As great as Kurt Cameron was in, uh, was it Growing Pains? Was that his show? Or Family Matters? I don't, was it Growing Pains? As great as he was in that, in the first Left Behind movie, it's literally the worst film ever made. They paid Kurt Cameron like 25 bucks and all the rest of the actors were like junior high drama students. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was horrible, right? But we were obsessed with this whole series. And it so created this craze in Christian language and rhetoric. Uh, we were all interested now in the apocalypse and the end times. And what if you were in a room where all of a sudden you're the only one left behind, right? Then I guess it means you, you, you know, you, you didn't get ransomed. Um, it's interesting to me, uh, Christians' approach to the end times. Some of you really don't care, right? How many of you just fall into that ca- category? I really don't care about the end times. I'm not that interested. All right, really? Okay. So how many of you guys like are really, really obsessed with the study of revelation or revelations, as some people inappropriately call it? Uh, how many people just, you would say, I'm obsessed with talking about the apocalypse and end times. Then what are the rest of you doing, right? Like, you, it's not that you don't care, nor you're obsessed. So you're, you're just completely, you're not even here right now. Okay, perfect. We've established that. So for the six of us tonight, it's going to be a fun journey, all right? Um, I, I, I got to be honest, like for me, um, probably up until a week ago, I was in the category of, I really, I really don't care. And it's not that I don't care, just... Like, Revelation is so incredibly difficult to interpret. I always struggle, like, being affirmed in it. You know, I start reading it, and all the beasts, and the horses, and the colors, and the nations, and the numbers. Are you confused with the numbers? It's like 144,000. We got 12. We got four. We got seven. I mean, it's just all these numbers. I, just, I was just like, look, give me Jesus or give me death. That's all I need. I love Jesus. Whatever Revelation says. But then we came uh, to the study of Daniel. And for those of you guys that know anything in general about Daniel, it's the revelation of the Old Testament. A lot of apocalyptic discussion. Not so far. 
So far in six chapters, it's been narrative. The story of Daniel and the rise and fall of many kingdoms, how Daniel has responded to it. But then we get to a very interesting chapter in chapter 7. And in this chapter specifically, more than any other chapter in Daniel, there is some very intriguing apocalyptic end times stuff. And for me, who like looked at this kind of stuff and looks at Revelation previously as just like, I, I don't even know how it edifies. I've completely come full circle. And I hope tonight as we get going in this that by the end, maybe you will have too. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the page numbers on your screen. Again, if tonight's your first time here, uh, thank you so much for coming. It's amazing to be journeying with you. We've been studying this, this man named Daniel, this book Daniel, and actually um, we're going to finish it up tonight. You're like, well, but there's still many chapters to go. Well, yes, there is. Um, but the problem is with Daniel after verse 14, it gets so difficult to interpret that to teach it at the pace that we do, it wouldn't be as affirming as another uh, piece of scripture would be for us. In other words, if you look at Daniel chapter 8 and you get all of the scholars together and have them argue about how to interpret Daniel chapter 8, you would literally come up with hundreds of different interpretations. So I'm not going to act like I'm like Confucius preacher man that can somehow give you the exact revelation of God. So we're going to finish up Daniel tonight. We're going to recap next week. And then two weeks from then, we'll begin drum roll the book of Hebrews. So we'll be headed there. Uh, We'll be in Hebrews for a good year. Okay, so if that gives you any indication of our pace through the scripture, uh, that's where we'll be headed. So let's get going here in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read the first uh, eight verses here. And uh, this is going to seem very interesting to you as it has me. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Verse 2. Daniel declared... I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Interesting. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it told arise devour much flesh. Could you imagine just dreaming this right now? Like this is like your worst nightmare. You've got lions with wings and bears eating flesh. Verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard, the old classic leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and, and a dominion was given to it. And after this I, uh, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which uh, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in his horn uh, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. End quote. Um... So anyone want to give that a go? Anyone just want to give that a try, right? Now, again, my previous statements, I think, hold up true. Before all this, I was like, this does not edify us. The visions and all this crazy beast stuff, like this isn't good for us. But I want you to stay with me. Just trust me. By the end of this passage, 
you and I are going to have a completely different perspective. So let's take it piece by piece. All right, here we go. Let's begin in verse 1 again. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. What does that tell us? We've already studied Belshazzar. You remember him, right? Belshazzar took over after Nebuchadnezzar's death. So this puts us back in history about 553 BC in between chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is in between those chapters. So he gave us the narrative, his story, his life in the first six chapters. And now at the end, it's like he's going to, as he records, share these visions that he received. Savvy? So this isn't in chronological order, the book of Daniel. He's now going back. In the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, he has a dream. And look what he says here. The four great beasts come up out of the, what's the word there? Out of the sea. Now, there are really only four biblical seas. Uh, I have seen a couple of those. I have uh, swam in the Dead Sea. Anyone else? Pretty amazing. The salt content is incredible. You literally float on the surface. I unfortunately forgot about that and rubbed my eyes, uh, uh, rendering me blind for about a half an hour. But besides, that was great. Uh, then you have, you have the Sea of Galilee, which is really more of a lake. Um, it's a, a beautiful scene where Jesus walked on the water. The sea that we're talking about here biblically is the Mediterranean. So he sees the great sea, the Mediterranean, and out of this sea comes four beasts. Now let's start to understand the beast, shall we? Uh, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Okay. Um, well, what we need to do in just understanding what this is, is remember a previous dream that Daniel has already interpreted. Put this up. You remember, Daniel has already interpreted a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had. For those of you that haven't been joining us, Nebuchadnezzar took over in 605. He deported a bunch of Jews to uh, his uh, hometown, Babylon. And in chapter 2, he has this dream. And the dream is of these four kingdoms, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian, and the Roman. So what Daniel sees in this vision are these same four empires. Next slide. The first is the Babylonian Empire. It was a lion with uh, the wings of eagles. The lion, as we described in the understanding of Babylon, a lion represents like this fierce a monarch, this incredible uh, power that Nebuchadnezzar had. But look at what happens to the lion. Uh, the first lion was like that of uh, wings of eagles in verse 4. Then as I looked, its, its wings were plucked off, which can't be fun. Do you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He begins to get haughty and prideful, boisterous. What happens? God literally makes him a beast, plucking his wings from him, taking his power. And for seven years, the scripture said, he became like an animal. Incredible stuff. That's all talked about here. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet. God restores him and the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. And so the Medo-Persian empire now represents uh, the bear. Now, why three ribs in his mouth outside of just a really cool picture in your mind, right? Well, the the Medo-Persian empire uh, was an empire that was completely committed to devouring nations. And there were three main victories for the Medo-Persian Empire. They defeated Babylon, then they defeated Lydia, and then they defeated Egypt, those three empires. So Daniel, in this prophetic vision, sees a bear with his leg raised up, interesting, and then he has these three ribs in his mouth which represent the three empires that each have devoured. Now this next beast, this third beast, gets really interesting This is like a leopard. Any leopard fans here, right? Okay. Um, 
Actually, this is funny enough. Uh, the, the Aramaic, and I know this seems strange, but I looked. I'm like, what? okay, is it really leopard in the Aramaic? It's actually closer to panther. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, the, a panther is as cool. I don't, whether it's a leopard or a panther, either way, this, this empire is completely baller, right? So this leopard had four wings of a bird on its back, different from the eagle, and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, the interesting thing about the Grecian Empire, anyone know who was the leader of this empire? Anyone? Alexander the, Alexander the Great. Uh, he died at the age of 33, and it was said, and I've taught this before, that after he was done conquering lands, he wept because there was no one else to conquer. And so the leopard here, or a panther, is a very swift animal. It's bloodthirsty. And so the wings here represent how quickly Alexander the Great conquered and these, uh, four, um, these four heads of this leopard or panther represent the four generals who took over the Grecian Empire after Alexander died. Unbelievable stuff. All of this prophecy. Now we have a fourth beast, and this gets really interesting. Uh, and after all this, I saw a fourth, fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It's so ter- Have you ever had a dream where you couldn't really even describe what it was, but you just knew it was just messed up? Like he can't even, he doesn't even know how to put an animal on this. I mean, the first one was like a lion. This is like a panther. Now he's like, dude, this is like a monster. Like, I don't know what it was, but this thing was messed up. Look at this. Uh, I saw a night vision. Behold, the fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It's got to be good for your dental work. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left. It was different from all the beasts that before and it had ten horns. Now, the most powerful empire of all four of these, though each had very strategic marks about them was the Roman Empire. Scholars say, though uh, some historians may differ, that the empire lasts probably 1,500 years if you cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Every other empire before it, quick math, like 200 years or so. So this Roman Empire is this fourth beast. And so all of a sudden we get this picture that Daniel gets in his mind. A sea, four beasts rise out of it, and then verse 8 happens. And then, then this whole vision just, like, just gets crazy. So put up verse 8 for me here, would you? I considered the horns, as you do, as you're talking about horns. Uh, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, uh, a mini horn, if you will, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. So, no biblical knowledge. Well, outside of a little bit, okay? But, but maybe you've read this, okay, as inaccurate and unbiblical at times as this is. Who would you say Little Bighorn is here? Wait, I went Indian there. Who, who, would, you say, who would you say Little Horn is here? Who would you say? Anyone? The Anti. The Antichrist. We're in Daniel chapter 7, and the Antichrist makes an appearance. You start talking about Antichrist and people start getting weirded out really quick. You know what I mean? Like some of you are like, bathroom, you know, check please, I'm out of here, right? But, but here in the prophetic words of Daniel, we get a picture of the Antichrist, this little horn which rises up. And what does the scripture say? Has eyes like that of a man. And the literal uh, rendition here of the Aramaic is haughty eyes, pompous eyes, arrogant eyes. And a, a mouse speaking great things is not that he was a, a great uh, rhetorical individual, but rather his words were arrogant. So it causes us to, to pause real quick here in this vision, and you're still wondering, how does all this apply? Wait on it, okay? We have to understand a little bit about the Antichrist. If Daniel is hundreds of years before the coming of the Antichrist, 
Like, why does all of a sudden this make an appearance? Well, Thessalonians says this. Next slide. Thessalonians says this about the Antichrist. That this Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what the Antichrist will do whenever he comes, and if you've been in any Christian circles, one of the favorite rhetoric of Christians is to say, I bet they're the Antichrist, you know? It's, we just throw that name, we just throw that word out at just random times. I've heard people say all kinds of people are the Antichrist, haven't you? I mean, I'll be sitting in circles where literally, like, someone say, I bet Mother Teresa was the Antichrist. What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a person that is proclaiming to be God. They're taking haughty approach to things. And now what I want to show you is Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before John sees a similar vision, there's this rhetoric that's used. So keep your finger in Daniel, and I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. The page number is on your screen. Revelation chapter 13. I believe, and maybe Jeff or Matt could affirm this, I believe this is probably the first time I've read out a revelation here at Matthias. So welcome, glad you're here. Now look at this. So interesting here. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Okay, Um, we've been there, done that, right? I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. All right, that's a little confusing. But it has ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a what? A bear's. And its mouth was like what? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. You want to know something else? You want to know what the kingdom against God is called in Revelation? Anyone want to take a stab at it? It's called Babylon. Interesting, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And here in this vision that John receives about Revelation and the end that's to come, he describes the same animal structure that Daniel has just described way before. He goes on and it gets more interesting. One of its heads, verse 3, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was, uh, was healed and the whole earth uh, marveled as they followed the what? The beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This is, friend, the picture of Revelation. There's many pictures of it through the scriptures of the Antichrist. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, the same thing we just saw, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Sorry, don't have time to go into that. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, this would be the time where, um, and some of you won't even know what this means, where we like go into, are you post-trib, pre-trib, no-trib? And you start throwing around all that, you know, Christian jargon about the tribulation. We're not going to make any teachings on the tribulation tonight or any uh, estimations. But what we are going to say is that Daniel uh, uh, prophesies about the Antichrist hundreds of years before the Antichrist comes. And what we can say about the Antichrist is this, is they claim to be God. And if you claim to be God, especially in the power right, you know what will happen. And this is Daniel's point. 
So I want you to turn back to Daniel and we're going to start to piece some of this together. He sees a picture of the Antichrist, the little horn. The end of verse 8 says, and he has a mouth speaking great things. And now listen, I, I want you, if you can, I want you to picture yourself uh, sleeping. That's not so hard to do. Some of you are already there. I want you to picture yourself sleeping. And I want you to picture one of the most intense dreams you've ever had. Daniel has just had this intense dream and then he's writing down verse 9. And as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Daniel is in this vision, this prophetic vision, where he has just seen these four empires rise and fall. He's just seen the Antichrist. Now all of a sudden, guess who makes an appearance? God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. This is the only time in the entire scripture where this rhetoric is used. I know some of you grew up singing the song, right? Glory and power, you know? Okay. But there was a one song, one bad song that was made, and it was entitled Ancient of Days. But the point of this is, is that Daniel sees God. And he doesn't just see God, he, see God, he sees God sitting on a seat. And look what happens. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This is an ancient Mesopotamian way of talking about wisdom. Someone with gray hair like that of wool must have wisdom. He sees God. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Does anyone else feel this a little bit? This man named Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before any of this, what he's about to talk about will ever come to, come to play, he sees God sitting on his seat in judgment as the Ancient of Days, the one true, holy, righteous, glorifying God. Powerful, powerful picture. And it makes me jealous. Anyone else? I'm like sitting here thinking to myself, do you think Daniel was ever the same after this moment? He's like having to write this or through a scribe, which would have taken a year, right? But writing the ancient of days in handwriting. Let me ask you this. Do you think he was ever the same after this moment? He's seen all this stuff, the rise and the fall of kingdoms. He's seen even this horn that he's trying to understand as the Antichrist. And then he sees God sit in his rightful seat. Could you imagine yourself ever being the same? And in the moments this past week, as I've been thinking about myself, thinking about how jealous I am of the fact that Daniel gets to see this prophetic vision of God, I've realized something. Don't we have the same chance? Now, not quite the same. I'm not saying that those of us in here are going to have this prophetic vision of God. But God's character is being revealed and clarified and put forth through His Scripture, through His saints, through His creation, day after day after day. 
And I sit back thinking about Daniel's life and I'm like, there's no way Daniel could ever be the same after he had seen a prophetic vision of God. And yet I get the opportunity to see God's character manifested all over my life and my place and through relationships that I have. And yet at times I seem unchanged. How? How does this happen? How could I sit back and have the audacity to say, but if Daniel saw God or Peter, James, and John who saw the transfiguration, they could never be the same. I mean, they saw God. But his character, the trueness of it, the eternal nature of it, the love of it, the glory of it is constantly being revealed here and now. The manifest, the fullness we wait on, but its character we see now. Amen? And so I sit back from all this thinking to myself, okay, so, so what's the application for me and you? Well, not quite yet. But to say you and I, just like Daniel, have the chance to see this vision of God. His character revealed. His love put forth. His power shining through all the darkness. Now it goes on. Verse 11. I looked then, as you do, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So he's seeing this picture of God and he's hearing these words in this dream of the Antichrist, these great, haughty, blasphemous words that this man is God. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Now, let me, let me tell you something before we go on. At this point in history, 553, the Jews, which in the Old Testament are God's people, God's chosen nation to reveal His mercy and grace and how His love works. They've been deported to Babylon. Okay, many have been killed. And in 553, as Belshazzar takes over, Belshazzar was even more evil than Nebuchadnezzar. His people at this point are getting this sense like, are we still your people or not? Like seriously? Like if we're your people, it's the same thing that the Israelites experienced in the desert. Are we your people? I mean, 40 years out here. Oh, do you remember how you worshipped idols? Oh yeah, but 40 years out here. They're starting to have this sense. God seriously deported to Babylon, refugees if you will. And then he gets this vision. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. Now, when, uh, when he was describing the dream about Nebuchadnezzar, it was secondhand. Nebuchadnezzar had been given a dream, and do you remember what the point was of that whole dream that Daniel shared at the end? Kingdoms will rise and fall, but there's one kingdom that lasts forever. Okay. Fair enough. But now all of a sudden, he, in his own prophetic vision, sees this little horn rise up and be killed. And all of these powerful kingdoms that hadn't not yet, Babylon hadn't been destroyed yet. Belshazzar was a Babylonian. Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, was getting ready to take over. All that hadn't yet happened. But all these kingdoms were going to rise and crumble And you've got to think to yourself, if you're a Jew at this point, 
That's pretty affirming. That's pretty affirming. But not as affirming as verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why have I missed this for so long? I've preached Daniel chapter 7, son of man, before, but I've missed it. Do you understand what Daniel sees here? He's just seen God and now he sees the Christ. Called in this vision the son of man. Which in essence is like this. In in Aramaic or to a Hebrew speaking person, when you say that there's something that's a son of something, it means it's attached So one could say, uh, he's a son of wealth because he's greedy. Or one could say, he's a son of uh, sin because he's sinful. So in this case, Daniel sees this vision of one that's called the son of man, which does two things automatically. It makes Jesus a man. But not just a man, also a God. And it morphs in one beautiful statement. Son, sonship of God, the Godhead of man. It morphs these two identities of Christ some 500 plus years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And did you know that Jesus refers to himself as one phrase more by far than any other phrase? Any guesses at what that is? The Son of Man. And do you have any estimations where he gets that from? Daniel. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this phrase is used in reference to Jesus. It's as if when Jesus comes on the scene, 28 in Matthew, and we're about ready to see five of them. It's as if Jesus comes on the scene and he says, what was written about hundreds of years before, I am here now. Fully God fully man, the son of man, over and over and over, nearly 80 times in the synoptic gospels, he refers to himself as the son of man. You want to know how many times he refers to himself as the Messiah? Any guesses? Once. Who was that? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Yeah. That was like my punchline there. I was going to get you on that one, you know? 75, one. I blew the whole thing, right? One time, but son of man over and over. Let's check some of these out. First verse, Matthew chapter nine, verse six. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, and many of you know the story, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The son of man has come with authority, he says. Next slide. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they give some answers and they ultimately say, you're the Christ. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. By the way, uh, one out of four times in the Gospels when He refers to Himself as the Son of Man, He's referring to His second coming. It's this common phrase, this common rhetoric that's to talk of Christ and His kingship and His glory and His return. Next slide. And whoever would be first among you must first be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Listen, before we read this last one, why is it so significant? Why do we care? Jesus comes down and starts throwing around the term Messiah. Do you guys understand what that means? That's what the Jews were waiting for. You know what Messiah means? It means Redeemer. And to the Jews... It was this redemption with, a, with force, with a grenade launcher. They wanted a Messiah who would come down, wipe out the Romans, kill them all, so that then Jesus, as the one true ruler, could stand as their militant coup d'etat kind of person. That's the right phrase, right? That's what they were thinking. So instead, Jesus is using this term over and over and over, son of man, son of man, son of man. It's no wonder why the Jews were a little bit confused. Because they're waiting for someone to come down and say, like, I'm the Messiah t-shirt. And he kept saying, I'm the Son of Man. The Son, Man, fully God and fully man. Not what they were expecting. Last slide here. Jesus said to them, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of, on the clouds of heaven. Verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. Prophecy does two things, primarily. The first is to awe us. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, and every single one of them come true. That's pretty remarkable. So at first it awes us. We're like, look at the rhetoric here. We're like, cloud of heaven, Son of Man, and Jesus uses it. And then he doesn't just use it, but he dies and he raises again. So it does that for us. But prophecy also does something else. And this is the thing that I haven't realized until now. So why study this? Why care a lick about revelation? That's what my grandpa used to say. Let me show you. Put up this next slide here. Now, I've uh, brought up this slide a few uh, weeks ago. We were talking about God's story. Now, God's story is eternal. How Jesus always was. Jesus, when he was incarnated at his birth on the earth, it didn't mean that all of a sudden Jesus showed up. Jesus always was. And you have just but a little sliver of the story of God. And God's story is unfolding. And God's story is moving. And God's story is headed in a specific direction. But we as humans, we start to get confused. Listen, you're Daniel or one of the Jews. They've seen the rise and fall of empires. They've seen kings go. They've seen people die. They have seen literally utter chaos. And the thing that starts to come up in their mind, God's not in control. God is losing control of this. This is out of God's hand. He is like something here isn't happening right. God must, he must have just lost control. He must have lost a battle here because things appear too chaotic. This can't be right. This isn't the God I know because God, remember, He's working everything out to the good of those who love Him and are called according. Like, no, this isn't happening. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought to yourself, no way you're still in control because this, this is too, this is too intense. 
this is too much. This hurts too bad. There's no way this could have been in your plan because I don't see the good that this will ever bring. I'm confused. The amazing thing about prophecy is that it does this. Next slide. You're like, does what? Um, Fair enough. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people will walk on this earth, have walked, millions and millions and millions, including you. And all of it, though it appears to take this chaotic path, will all end at one spot, the glory of the Ancient of Days, manifested through His Son, Jesus. One spot. Millions and millions and millions and millions of seamed paths where we're like, God, this is out of control. There's no way. This can't come back together. I mean, this is too chaotic. There's too much happening here. And yet, it's all working to one end, the glory of God. And He will be the victor And Jesus will come back and God will sit on his righteous throne and Jesus will kill the beast and the church will be redeemed. One end, the glory of God. That's it. All of these paths which seem to take all of these different directions are all streamlined to the same spot in history that will mark a new eternity, an everlasting kingdom as we continue to pursue the glory of God. One end. And it seems like many means to that end, but God has it all under control. And so Daniel sits here, seeing the rise and fall of of many kings, seeing all these empires, and he's encouraged and begins to tell and writes down, do not be dismayed. God is in control. God is in control. He will win. And not for you, but for himself, for his glory. So even after that, I sit back and say, well, okay, but still, why study prophecy? Like there has to be something more than even just we get to see how God's story is all funneling to the glory of God. What does that mean for me and you now? If we know the end, and if we know, Philippians, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, if we know that in the end God will receive all the glory, would it change you now? Would it change your mentality about your life, your worship, your direction? If you knew that in the end that man and all of its kingdoms would crumble But God would be worshipped, God would be glorified, God would sit on the judgment seat, Christ would return. If you knew all of that was going to be happening, wouldn't something change? And I sit here looking at a whole bunch of people, oftentimes unchanged, right? Oftentimes caught up in our little thing saying, no way you're still in control of this. 
My stuff is too big. My problems are too great. God, there's no way you're still holding all this in the palm of your hand. Well, all the while, he's like, hold on a second. It's all right here. My glory. My glory. So let me ask you this. If we know all the glory is his in the end, then shouldn't we give him the glory now that he'll get anyway? If we know in the end, it's all his. Then shouldn't we give him the glory now that he'll receive anyway? If I were talking with my daughter, she would say, well, how do we give God glory? If that was our heart, if we did want to worship God and just say, I just want to glorify you more than anything else. How would I do that? And the verse that keeps resounding in my head is when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Obedience. But not because we're just supposed to or because some rules and regulations have been posted on a church wall, but because we're responding to the prophecy. Christ came, spoke, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man. He's crucified. He raises again, fulfilling prophecy in Isaiah. All of these things come true. And so our response is either, you know, I'm just going to let this play out. And in the end, if the glory is yours, so be it. Or it's no, I long because of my picture of God and His character now and His redeeming work in my heart to give Him glory today. I must obey. I must follow. I must not conform to this culture. I must not sit on the hamster wheel of sin. I want to be transformed now. People who are interested in giving God glory now, they understand repentance now. Not waiting for some benchmark in your life. Repenting today. Turning from the world today. Saying, God, I want to glorify you today. I don't think the return of Christ is just going to creep up on us. And the reason I say that is because Jesus said the day and the hour is unknown. It's going to come like a thief in the the night. And so I ask you, lastly, if you're Daniel and you could see this prophetic vision in your head, understanding that kingdoms will rise and fall, but one kingdom will have eternal dominion and that's the kingdom of God manifested through his son Jesus, how would you respond? Would you just do your deal and let culture take over and say, well, just let it all play out? Or would you say, because of the love and grace of Christ, which has redeemed my soul from the pit, I will follow you. The picture of um, obedience because of the grace of Christ has been celebrated by churches for a couple thousand years remembering the night when Jesus broke the bread. When he broke it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. 
And as I'm sharing this with you now, the thing that came into my mind and my head was the Son of Man coming in glory. It's like this picture of a broken Christ who will come again. And then he takes the cup and he holds it up. And he says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, the new promise. You're not attached to the law anymore. You're attached to me in Christ. So give me glory now. Worship me, serve me. And when you take this, remember that it's, it's through me that you'll be able to obey, not on your own accord. So take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. This meal is for uh, followers of Jesus to respond by walking up and pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup. And tonight, as you make this walk, what you're saying is, now, now, I must not wait or tarry another second. God is in control. He will receive glory. And I long to give it to him now. Worshiping him and no one else. And least of all, myself. Let's pray together. God, I would ask tonight that... um, Here's what I ask, God. This picture that you gave Daniel. I pray in these moments, in these few brief moments, that you would give us a picture of yourself, of your character, of your true being. God, give us a picture of you. Let us see you. Give us a glimpse of the train of your glory. God, I pray that you will hear our repentant hearts tonight turning from sexual addiction, turning from uh, escalating relationships and drunkenness and the abuse of all kinds of things. God, will you hear our repentant hearts tonight? And will you remind us, God, by, by your spirit, will you remind us that you are in control, that your kingdom will come, that you will reign? God, remind us of the victory that we have now in your son Jesus. thank you for the, the picture in your scripture that says one day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess that you are God we long for that day respond when you're ready church